Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Title for today's sermon is Oppressed and Afflicted, Litigating the Son of God. As you're turning there, let me just give you a quick word about expository preaching or what we call consecutive exposition, which means we we go through books of the Bible regularly at Mission Road Bible Church because we want to study God's Word as He wrote it. And that's important because if we were to respond every week to everything that's happening in every news cycle, uh, it would really put the agenda for the church, frankly, frighteningly, on me or on our elders to say, what are we going to talk about or preach about next? But when we assemble and are confronted with this, just the next passage that's in the text, we have every assurance that God has brought us to that text and that text to us on this day with these people in this moment and can look at the text before us today and say, what does God have to say to me? What does God have to say to me in this text? Well, we find ourselves in the wee hours of the morning, Late, late on Thursday night, deep into the wee hours of Friday morning, Jesus has just been arrested, and we pick outside the Garden of Gethsemane, and we pick it up in verse 53. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and to all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes. They gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up, And came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him. 
and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Perry Mason. That name will not mean much to some of you, to many of you actually, who are not younger than, older than 45 or 50, I would guess. But for those of us who are watching our hair turn a different color, we remember Perry Mason as a fixture for a generation. It was my parents' favorite show, bar none. Now just uh, to get to know each other a little bit, how many of you do remember the show Perry Mason? And you can look at those who don't have their hands up and they are (laughs) younger. Perry Mason, for those of you who don't know, was an American legal drama. It was a series that originally broadcast on CBS television from 1957 to 1956 before it went into syndication and was repeated often after that. The title character, Perry Mason, was played by Raymond Burr. He was a fictional Los Angeles criminal defense lawyer and the script followed an almost identical cycle every single series, every single episode. Mason was a criminal defense lawyer who defended clients wrongfully charged with murder. And one of the hallmarks of the series was during every show, there was a moment when it became crystal clear that most of the witnesses testifying against Mason's clients were lying. They were involved in something illegal. They were covering themselves. They were trying to convict an innocent man. Perry Mason would figure it out. The innocent man would be freed. Now, he did lose one case out of 271 episodes, by the way. And I'm going to let those of you who are trivia nuts kind of go after that one on your own. What made Perry Mason a cultural phenomenon? Well, it's the same thing that's filled every medium of entertainment with courtroom dramas and cop shows since. It's the most popular genre on television right now. Cop shows and courtroom dramas. Why? Because everyone's heart intuitively yearns for justice. We want the good guy to win and the bad guy to lose. We want the bad guys to be brought to justice and the good guy or good guys to be exonerated. We want justice. The trauma of the trials of Jesus Christ are the most egregious accounts of miscarriages of justice, the most egregious accounts of injustices in the history of the world. That's no small statement. No greater injustice, no series of injustices were accounted to any trial about anything with anyone more than what we're about to witness in the coming texts. This grand injustice, though, was no accident. Jesus was no helpless victim. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, this was all according to the predetermined plan of God Jesus, when he was arrested just a few moments before this, this time, was arrested and told the disciples, one of whom wanted to come to his defense and brought out a sword and cut off the slave of the high priest's ear, do you not know that 
I could call more than 72,000 angels right now who will defend me. He was no victim. He did this willfully. He did this willingly. In fact, going one step further, the unjust trial that we're about to study was prophesied by Isaiah in the Mount Everest of all messianic prophecies. Isaiah 53, verse 7. This is the place I got our, te- our text's title today. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away, taken away to be tried. It's late Thursday night. It's in the wee hours into Friday morning. It won't be long from now before day will break and we'll know that when we look at our text next week because the rooster will crow at the dawn. It's the last hours of Jesus' earthly life. Just to catch you up, he has just spent most of the night with the final Passover meal and the first communion meal with his disciples followed by a time of intense prayer in Gethsemane that was so traumatic it made his sweat glands burst with blood he has a saturated outer garment with sweat and blood he rises from that time with the mob coming to get him some 600 plus people with torches and swords and clubs and they arrest him They arrest him with him being completely willing to be arrested. In fact, John says he arose and walked to the crowd. Now he's ushered into a series of trials. Trials that will wrongly convict the most innocent man who's ever lived of a capital offense. Now I think most know, but just to use that term, we're going to use that term regularly in the sermon, a capital offense is a a, a crime that's worthy of the death penalty. The legal and historical illegalities and injustices of the trial before us is notorious and graphic. A little background, the Jews had a had a standard of interpretation of oral law that began to be collated at the time of Jesus. There was an interpretation, an application of the law of Moses, and it was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah became the first part of the Talmud later. The Mishnah was was a series of, of laws and interpretations of the law that were to be applied by the Jews that in their mind were equal to the law and just an application of the law of Moses. Let me read to you from the Mishnah a few stipulations that were to be enacted during a capital trial. Number one, no trial could be held at night. We meet Jesus in this trial, guess when? At night. 
Number two, the verdict in a capital case could not be reached in the first trial. It had to wait until a second day so the trials could be held uh, 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 with an extended period of time so that they didn't make a mistake because they were taking a man's life. This trial happened all in one night, these series of trials. Furthermore, it couldn't be held on the night before or the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. This is wrong on both accounts, depending on how you count the time. This was the day before Passover, the eve before Passover, and if you count it as Friday, it was the eve of the Sabbath. So it was wrong on every account. Witnesses had to be warned to relate only true first-hand testimony, and these witnesses spoke verifiable lies that even contradicted each other. Those accused of blasphemy, as we'll see Jesus accused of later, could be convicted only if they literally and verbally reviled the divine name. And Jesus never, never spoke evil of the name of his Father. Trials could not be held in the palace of the high priest. This trial takes place in two palaces of two high priests. We'll see that in a moment. And then finally, the Old Testament specifies how capital punishment was to be exacted. It could take place by stoning, burning, beheading, or or strangling. Jesus was crucified completely outside of the regulations of the Mishnah. Now, he was crucified by the Romans, and as we'll see in two weeks, they wanted the Romans to do it so they could wash their hands of it and it could be on the Romans and not the Jews. They wanted to be as free as they could. They wanted the Romans to execute such a popular teacher so they could not be blamed for it directly. All to say this. this these trials, this series of, these series of trials, are completely illegal, completely ungodly, and completely unjust. So for this study, we are going to examine part of Jesus' unfair trials, and that will make more sense as to it being part in a moment. Three ways Jesus willingly suffered unfair litigation. Three ways Jesus willingly, purposefully, sacrificially, and graciously suffered unfair litigation. Litigation that was to ultimately give him the death penalty. The first is in verses 53 and 54. It was an unfair prosecution. It was an unfair prosecution. Verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Now, before we dive into verse 53, you need to know that something happened on the way to this place. John picks it up for us. 
he tells us that after Jesus was arrested, and if you can think about kind of uh, drawing a, a, a J in your mind, they went from Gethsemane up to uh, the palace of Annas first before they go to the palace of Caiaphas. Now you say, who is Annas? Annas was the high priest who reigned from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. The man who reigned in, in the, the Galilean area in the... Judean area, rather, uh, before Pilate, his predecessor, uh, Valerius Gratus, removed him from office in A.D. 15. Still, though, Annas continued to exert massive influence over the, the priesthood, and the high priesthood in particular. There was one high priest who served for a year. How do we know he was, he was in such control? Five of his sons... And his son-in-law, named Caiaphas, who we'll meet in a moment, held the office of high priest at one time or the other or multiple times amongst themselves. He was truly the godfather of these high priest offices. He was the puppet master behind all of these men. So on the way to the reigning high priest named Caiaphas, who John tells us is is the, the owner of the palace where Mark is indiscriminate. He doesn't tell us who it is. It's Caiaphas's palace. Before they get there, they stop off at Annas's palace. There will be two phases of Jesus' trial, one Jewish and one Roman. And the first phase of this Jewish trial was two-phased itself. They stop off first by the house of Annas in John 18. Most people believe that this was the time just to stall so that they could get all of the Sanhedrin, the 71 members plus the elders and the, the, um, the chief priests to get to Caiaphas' house. So on the way, they stopped at Annas' house to try to get a preliminary hearing, a preliminary arraignment so that he could be then handed over to Caiaphas. After a quick examination, though, before, Caiaphas, before Annas, they send him to the home of Caiaphas because they cannot find anything to charge him with in the home of Annas. And he's the big dog. He's the main guy. And he couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus, so he dumps him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. No official charges left with Jesus from Annas's house. He should have been released right then and right there. Instead, he's forwarded to Caiaphas and all the Sanhedrin for another attempt to concoct a crime worthy of death. And again, by the time they get to Caiaphas' palace, his house, the entire Sanhedrin had been gathered. Now, a few things. First of all, this happens in the middle of the night, early, early in the morning. Most of these men had been a part of the arresting party of Jesus down in Gethsemane and those who hadn't had just been awakened from their slumber to come and see this Galilean, this man from Nazareth, tried. Also, you need to know a little bit about the, um, the palace. It was, uh, uh, we have excavations of uh, probably this house. It was a it was a two-story building in a square with two entrances on opposite sides that you would go into, and inside the, that building was a square courtyard. 
And that courtyard was where people would stand out. It was very large, probably uh, uh, bigger than a tennis court or so. And that's where people would assemble. But when Jesus was taken, John tells us, and Matthew tells us, he was upstairs. So he went through the courtyard upstairs in a, in a bigger meeting room to meet with Caiaphas. But down in the courtyard, other things are happening. What's happening? Verse 54 gives us the preview. And then when we get down to verse 66, we'll get the details. Peter. Peter. That brave man named Peter. Look back over at verse 29. Peter says to Jesus, after Jesus says, you're all going to flee, you're all going to leave me. Peter says, even though all may fall away, yet not I. And yet he's run away, but not that far. In the courtyard, or rather in the, the room above the courtyard are the high priest, that's Caiaphas, the chief priest, that's all of his minions. The elders, those are the people over, the men over all of the, tr the tribes. And the scribes, those are the theologians. They're, they're there to test Jesus, put Jesus to the test to see if he'll remain faithful. Down in the courtyard is Peter. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers, warming himself at the fire. There's, there's a whole lot here. It was cold that night. Makes me wonder about Jesus' discomfort at every level. It was cold that night. A fire had been built and, and people were standing around warming themselves. Probably some of the men who had just a few moments earlier, maybe an hour or so, arrested Jesus And Peter's standing with them around the fire. Mark pans from the upper room of the trial down into the courtyard, and there's Peter standing at the fire with members of the mob. These had to be torturous hours for Peter. He's too scared to run. He's too scared to stand, rather, and yet he's too loyal to run. John informs us that, by the way, another disciple came with Peter into that courtyard. We know that that was the, uh, the, uh, the disciple of John himself. John was known to have a relationship with the high priest, and he went inside with Jesus. Eventually, he asked Peter to come upstairs with him, but not until, not until after we study Peter next week. John 18, verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple and that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Peter eventually will end up inside with Jesus. Peter would also, before that, be recognized 
as one of Jesus' disciples. And the courage he displayed back in verse 25 is about to evaporate, but that's for next week. James Edwards comments, quote, How awkwardly Peter looks in the courtyard of the high priest trying to mingle with the henchmen who probably arrested Jesus and who will presently mock and beat him. Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation, end quote. All that's occurred in Annas' house and here at Caiaphas' house, as we will see in a moment, completely illegal and completely unfair. It was an unfair prosecution from the beginning. Secondly, there were multiple false testimonies. A second way Jesus willingly suffered unfair litigation, there were multiple false witnesses. Verse 55, now the chief priests... And the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. Remember, this is 71 members of the, uh, the Sanhedrin plus chief priests and their, their, um, their, their workers. This is more than 100 people against Jesus, and they cannot find a legitimate case scouring Jerusalem. How hard would it find anybody how hard would it be for anyone to find one thing wrong with you and me today in the last hour? Yeah, the most influential people in Israel going out all over the area of the Jerusalem Temple Mount looking for people to bring witness charges against Jesus. Now, I think most of these people are probably waking up out of a deep slumber. Probably on the waking up Friend of a friend, maybe a friend of one of the high priests, of a chief priest, friend of one of the elders. Hey, come on. I need you to say things about Jesus. And they were concocting all of these stories that were completely fabricated. Mark takes us inside the room now, upstairs to the kangaroo court. This is quite a gathering. Early Friday morning, before the sun is up, but all 71 members of the Sanhedrin are there. And for capital cases, the Mishnah required 23 members of the Sanhedrin to agree for conviction. And remember, that will be sent to the second day so they didn't do anything in haste. Both of these trials at Annas' house and at Caiaphas' house were to take place in daylight so there would be no suspicion of wrongdoing and both of them took place in the dark of night. They wanted to expedite his execution. And we'll see in two weeks, in two paragraphs, we will see their sinister genius that this happens overnight before people are awake and they get him to the Roman court to have him tried there before everyone is up and at the market and looking around at the, the day of Passover. And by that time, they see Jesus accused, they see Jesus convicted by the Romans. And they think they're scot-free. The plan had a problem, though. It had a big problem. The problem is always trying to convict someone of something they didn't do. 
the, there's always a problem when you try to make someone innocent guilty. Look at the last phrase in verse 55. They were not finding any, any what? Any people who could say anything legitimately wrong that Jesus did. What a testimony. When they couldn't find anything that he did that was wrong for which they could accuse him, they had to make up something that he didn't do. Verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him. But their testimony was inconsistent. He said this. No, actually he said that. He did this. No, actually he did that. They were fighting against each other saying, no, that's not true. And that, that's not true. Contradicting each other and making him look even more innocent. These witnesses have been coerced to give false testimony against Jesus. And this was a clear and certain violation of the ninth commandment. What's the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false testimony or witness. Right. Without corroborating evidence, the case was getting very close to dangerously being dismissed. Can you imagine their panic? This is getting worse. They're going to be out and out. There were multiple witnesses who they knew would talk the next morning. They were about to be the false chargers. They were about to be completely discredited. Verse 57, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, and this is always the case when you, when you misquote the Lord, you take him out of context we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, I will build another one made without hands. Where did they get that? They got that from two and a half years before. Two and a half years before, Jesus comes, cleanses the temple the first time at his first Passover in Jerusalem. Mark didn't record this. John does in John chapter 2. And in verse 18, we read this. Listen to John chapter 2. This is two and a half years old. And imagine the, the swelling rumors and the, the telephone that had played out since then. You say one thing, say it to someone else, someone else, someone else, and it's far different down the road. Imagine what happened with this statement. John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews then said to him, after he had cleansed the temple, turned over the, the money changers' tables, got the whip, the cat of nine tails, was driving out people who were being disloyal to, to God and he says this the Jews said to him what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things who gave you the right to do this to us Jesus answered them destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up that is not what they said Jesus said I will destroy this temple, they said, made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. That is a distortion of what he said. The Jews then said, Ha, huh, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was, John gives us color. John says, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The Jews listening to him understood him to be 
saying that he was going to somehow, maybe even miraculously, tear down the temple and then build a new one in three days. But even that recollection was inconsistent. Verse 59. Not even in this respect, what he said about the temple, was their testimony consistent. They couldn't even agree about what he said about the temple. According to Jewish law, by the way, at least two and better three witnesses had to agree before imposing the death penalty. That's according to Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, and Deuteronomy 17:6, Deuteronomy 19:15. Mark is making the point that none agreed because none were telling the truth. They were giving false testimony. Jesus willingly suffered unfair litigation by hearing lie after lie after lie to try to get him accused of something he did not do so he'd be sentenced to death. Which pushes us to the crux of the passage. The result was an unjust sentence. The result was an unjust sentence. The high priest stood up. Stop. 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 That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. If you read the gospel record very carefully, anytime Jesus went into the synagogue to teach, what did he do? He sat down. The position of authority was to sit down. Caiaphas, up to this point, had been sitting probably at one end of the room on an elevated stage, hearing everything. People flinging false accusations. It was, must have been a raucous of a, of a situation. It must have been loud and boisterous. But I think when, when the high priest stood up, it went dead silent. This was a big deal for him to vacate his judgment seat. And he comes forward. He walks up. Put this scene in your mind. He is now feet away, eye to eye, face to face with Jesus and questions Jesus. He says, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? None of them agree with each other. You tell me the truth. Jesus, verse 61, kept silent and didn't answer. Again, this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter. Caiaphas gets impatient. He knows he's in trouble. He knows all eyes are on him. So he goes for the jugular. He goes for the popular opinion, opinion. He goes for the question that everyone wanted an answer to. He goes right to the singular, most important question Jesus had ever been asked in his entire ministry. Are you the Christ? 
the son of the blessed one, the blessed one was God, the son of God. That was the rumor. That's what people had been saying. So he just brings it to the critical point. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And listen, you'll see in a minute, to answer that he was the Son of God would be to say he was, in fact, God. Ego e me. Ego. Ego. I. A me. I am. There's a double emphatic there. I, I am. It's, it's, a, it's an answer to his question. But it's also a statement that he gave in the garden where those soldiers fell in absolute horror at the name of God himself, Yahweh, yod heh vav that, That's the ineffable, the unspeakable four letters, tetragrammaton. That was God's name. He is the I am And Jesus twice now, in just the span of a few verses, answers, I am. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. Back up for a moment into Caiaphas' question. Our our English texts say, put put a question in his mouth, Are, are, are are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? It's not a question in the Greek text. It's a statement with an implied question mark. Now, what I mean by that is we, we do that all the time. Our husbands, our wives do that all the time. You're going to wear that shirt with those pants? That, that's a question. That, that, that's not a statement. Caiaphas says, you are the Christ? You are the son of the blessed one. What makes that amazing is he's actually saying theological truth, factual truth about Jesus. Jesus goes from fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that he didn't speak a word to talking. Why? Because what Caiaphas is saying is true. He wasn't going to defend against false accusations, but he was going to affirm the right affirmation. That's exactly what he does. I am. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Son of God. Wow. Then he adds a footnote. And you shall see the Son of Man. He just said, I'm the Son of God. He now says, I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds. A prophecy he stitched together from two passages, Daniel 9, excuse me, Daniel 7, 13, and Psalm 110, verse 1. It's an affirmation with reference to the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13. A fully divine, exalted person presented to God. And in Psalm 110, we looked at that a few, few weeks ago, where the Lord says to my Lord, David speaks of one of his sons as his Lord. In other words, one of his, his progeny was going to be the, the, the Messiah himself. Sit at, my right, at the right hand of the mighty one. Sit in the place at the right hand of God where Jesus says he sits. Even now, he stitches those together and don't make any mistake. 
Those who heard him were experts in the law. They knew those passages. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew that the Messianic champion of Jewish promise was in between those two stitched together passages and Jesus was claiming to be him. If there's any question as to whether Caiaphas understood what Jesus was saying or not, Look at verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Another big deal. Now you gotta see the scene here. The high priest was a pompous, decorated, costumed man. He would have layers of, of, um, uh, of cloaks layers of, uh, of, of an overcoat. He would have uh, likely his ephod uh, that he would wear, which was a breastplate, uh, jewelry all over. When it says he ripped his clothes, listen, he didn't rip those clothes. He did not rip those clothes. The word for clothes is literally his undershirt. He made a big show. He took off his outer garments. He took off his sashes. He took off his tassels. And he got down to basically a nightshirt and ripped it. Ripped his t-shirt. You say, what is that about? Well, the Old Testament shows that tearing one's garments was a sign of profound alarm and consternation. 2 Samuel 1, 11, 2 Kings 18, 37, the same thing happens. This is the response they have been waiting for. They have Jesus trapped. He's claimed to be the Son of God. He's claimed to be the Messiah, which, by the way, wasn't a crime. Many people had claimed to be the Messiah up to this point, and they were never executed for that. But his claim to be the Son of the Blessed One, to be God himself, all through, one of the themes throughout John is that every time he says anything about being the Son of God, they pick up stones to kill him because he's blasphemed. Well, now they say he's committed blasphemy by saying he was the son of the blessed one, the son of God. The the punishment for blasphemy was death by stoning. Verse 64, you have heard the blasphemy, Caiaphas says. How does it seem to you? He's looking around at the crowd and saying, did you hear that? This is clear cut now. And they all condemned Jesus, him, to be deserving of death. Why? For claiming to be the Son of God, which was the truth. Jesus was committed by the Jews to be executed by telling them who he was which was the truth. Verse 65 has always disturbed and, and troubled me personally. It's hard to read, actually. Jesus is a condemned man. He's about to be thrown to Pilate. hundred plus men are around him in this small area it's all against him some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists 
and to say, prophesy. And the officers received him, which means they, they threw him back and forth and they received him with slaps to the face. Matthew 26 tells us a little bit more about this scene. It turns into a mob beating. The pain and indignities of this verse are overwhelming. Some are walking up to his face and spitting in his face. Now you can be sure they were hawking up the deepest impurities to spit in his face. Others were punching him and slapping him. Both carry their own pains. I don't know if you've ever been punched. It's not pleasant. I don't know if you've ever been slapped. It's not pleasant, but they carry different stings and different feelings and different blows, and they were putting both onto Jesus' face. And then a ruse. It's just, Matthew says they they put a bag over his head, he cinched it at his neck. He couldn't see. It was blindfolded. It wasn't just a little blindfold. They covered his head entirely. And they, they were walking up and mocking him and saying, if you're, if you're omniscient, if you're God, if, you're, if you know what you say you know, you know who this is. And they would punch him and say, prophesy, who was that? Who's this? Punch over and over by the time. By the time they would have removed that bag, he would have been unrecognizable. And he stood there and took it. It's bad enough to be punched and slapped. It's worse to not know it's coming. And they did this to your Savior. And he could have called all the forces of heaven to save himself. And he stood there. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me. That's about to happen. And my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. That happened, but we don't have a record of it in the Gospels. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Rewind the tape a week and a half. Jesus is walking from Jericho up the road up to Jerusalem, 13 miles or so. They're walking up there, and he says to his disciples in chapter 10, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This is a week and a half before. Listen. Behold, he told his men, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. That will happen in about an hour. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him, that's coming, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is exactly what he said would happen. 
And you know what else? This is exactly what he knew would happen. And he did nothing to avoid it. Why? Why? You know, I back up from this trial and we have another, we have another trial to go through with Pilate in a couple weeks. Equally as troubling. And two things stand out to me. Oh, there's much more. But two things gripped my heart. First of all, the love of Jesus is spectacular. The love of Jesus is spectacular. He willingly endured this torture out of love for his sheep. How bad was it going to be? Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. We are just beginning the beatings and just beginning the torture. We've only dealt with his face so far. His back is going to be lacerated to the point of exposing inner organs. His head's going to be pierced with four-inch thorns. He's going to be beaten again and again. How much so? Isaiah says it was so much that his form was unrecognizable to men. Eyes are beginning to be swollen shut. Blood is no doubt coming from his nose and his mouth. But it was out of love. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5 says, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed. He did all of this for us. He didn't have to. He even asked that he wouldn't have to endure this, and he still did. The love of Jesus is spectacular. Secondly, the example of Jesus is compelling. The example of Jesus is compelling. What, what do you mean by the example? Looking back at this event, Peter, writing a couple of decades later, says this. He actually says a lot about this event with reference to the atonement, but he also says something about Jesus enduring the suffering as an example for you and me. 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, what was going on in Jesus' heart? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the midst of being treated unjustly, he trusted himself to the one who would bring all justice to bear one day, even if it wasn't on his horizon. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For continually you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Hebrews 12 says he despised the shame 
Verse three, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus provides an example for us that when we, like him, like he was, treated, are treated unjustly, unrighteously, unfairly, his was far worse. He didn't defend himself. He didn't fight back. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. You know, looking back at all of those episodes I watched with my mom and dad of Perry Mason when I was a kid, I don't remember a lot of the details. I just remember they all ended the same way, except for that one episode. The good guy won, the good guy was exonerated, the bad guys lost, and they were punished. However, here in the crux of the gospel narrative, it's a complete reversal of that. Those values are upside down. The most wonderful, sinless, loving Savior loses his earthly trials. And listen, let me invite you into my study for the next month. It's going to get worse. Wicked men will execute Jesus and win for three days. And then he will rise to win forever. What a God we have. Jesus will triumph over his wrongful death sentence and death itself. Three days from now, from this trial, he will be completely exonerated, rise from the dead, from being crucified on Friday to alive on Sunday morning. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death gone. The victory of death gone. The fear of death gone. It brings us to ask, do we have that assurance for the one who did this to know that that was applied to our hearts? That we receive the love of God in Christ the sacrifice is meaningful to us by faith that we believe the good news of the gospel that he is the true and the only way to God the Father he has made a way to pay for our sin he has made a way to give us his righteousness he has made a way for us not to have fear of death because he rose from the dead from the dead himself do, do you know the Savior will you know the Savior this is not mythology this really happened in heaven and on earth and he really offers you with the, the doors of mercy open wide into heaven to say come come bring me your heavy burdens and take, take on mine it's not heavy take my yoke that thing that connects us on your back it's not heavy my burden is light I'll see you through. I'll carry you with me. I love you. I care for you. This is proof. What a love. What an example. If you know the Lord Jesus, praise God for him. Sing on the way home, hallelujah, what a savior. If you don't, I'll stay here all afternoon if that would help. The people around you would love to talk to you about what it means to come into a relationship with a holy, 
righteous father through his son who gives you forgiveness and holiness.